Let's see. Yes, economics, economics all around us. Um, everybody talks it constantly in the news. People have questioned about it, politicians, economists, public intellectuals, pundits, constantly talking about economic issues. Uh, you know, so what, 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 what are economic issues? What are the issues related to economics? What is economics as a field study? And I find the standard definitions of economics frustrating and, um, and, and, and really good people use these standard definitions and, and, and stand by them. And it really, it really kind of drives me, kind of drives me uh, crazy. You know, uh, Lionel Robbins probably has the, uh, most um, most uh, famous definition that many people use or many people refer to, and that is economics is the science which studies human behavior as a relationship between given ends, where do they where those ends come from, and scarce means which have alternative uses. And what you get is over and over and over again. Uh, this this scarce resources. So um, there's another definition. Chap GPT, when asked about economics, uh, provides this answer: Economics is a social science that studies how individuals, businesses, government, and societies make decisions about how to allocate their scarce resources. These resources can include labor, capital, land, and natural resources, and they are considered scarce because there are not enough of them to satisfy all the wants and needs of individuals in society. <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, there's so many problems with these definitions. There's so many problems because they ignore, they ignore the fundamental reality of the world in which human beings live. And that is not, the fundamental reality is not scarcity. That's what they center everything around. Now, there's an element of truth in the idea of scarcity. But it's not the central concept of economics. It's not what economics is. And it's certainly not about allocate resources. One has to ask really fundamental questions before that, or, or what is it, satisfy all wants and needs. Where do those wants and needs come from? Where do resources come from? What is a resource? I mean, a labor capital land, a natural resource is just lying out there and we need to just jigger them around and put them in the right place. What is labor? Where is labor from? How does capital get created? How does it get deployed? Where does it get deployed to? Yeah, land is there, but land is useless. Most land is useless. And what's a natural resource? What makes something a natural resource? Well, there's a lot of, and, and behind all of this is a massive amount of knowledge. Labor needs to be deployed in particular ways. That's knowledge. Capital, how it gets allocated, where it goes. There's knowledge about that. Land, okay, finite resource, but how it's used requires knowledge. Natural resources, to turn some gunk, black gunk that leaks out of the ground into oil requires knowledge. So it's not... Labor. I mean, they're not these resources out there. Something has to be brought to the foray in order to gain these resources. And people don't just have wants and needs that need to be fulfilled by whom? By just somehow. 
And the government is then therefore allocating stuff in order to fulfill your demands and needs. And that gives a huge role to allocation. It sounds so collectivist and centralized and everything. You know, and then they, they talk about economics as the study of scarcity. No. I mean, abundance. I mean, if anything, economics is a study of abundance. We, you know, resources are not scarce as a starting point. There's nothing as a starting point. The starting point is the human mind and its ability to take stuff in nature, stuff that nobody considered resources, and turn it into resources and turn it into stuff that then people want and desire and then, quote, there's not enough of it. Guess why? Because somebody has to produce it. The whole study of economics is about abundance. It's about creating stuff that people want and then figuring out how to get it to them. Not allocate it, not distribute it. So, so economics basically studies two fundamental phenomena that have to do with abundance, not with scarcity. And the two phenomena are production, the creation of goods, values, services, things that represent values to human beings, and trade, the means by which people can attain those goods. So if I had to define economics, it's a science that studies production and trade. Really simple. And yes, it is true that when you study production, you constantly have to make choices, that you constantly face trade-offs. This is the sense in which there's scarcity, right? I can't build, I can't build, um, uh, if I have an, a limited amount of capital, I can't build this and that. I have to choose this or that. But, okay, but that's just a question of production. What is most profitable? What is, what is most value creating? What, what is the best thing for me to produce? It's about the producers. It's about producing. And in facing choices about production, we have to make choices about how to deploy our capital. And it's not that capital is scarce. It's that at any given point in time, any given person or any given project has Limited capital. And it's not clear that, you know, again, human beings. But then once we have robots, are robots scarce? Well, it depends. If I have enough money and, and the project is good enough, I can probably get as many robots as I need. But if I spend it on robots, I can't spend it on something else. So trade-offs, absolutely. So if you want to include decisions... You know, you could say it's it's the science that studies the decisions that are involved in production and trade. But then this is about wealth creation. It's about producing. It's about values. It's about value creation, not allocation, not redistribution. So we already, when we engage with the field of economics, we have immediately 
uh, a, a challenge where immediately the definition, the whole approach to economics is an approach that is biased. It is biased towards a collectivist approach, allocating resources, allocating scarce resources, allocating by what principle? You know, who's going to allocate it? No answer, right? It doesn't say by what standard I should allocate, right? It just, we just, we allocate. And therefore, much of economic studies, government and government coercion, and there's no worry about that because the stand, well, we're allocating resources and there's nothing to say the government shouldn't allocate resources. Might not be the most efficient, but we're just studying allocation of resources. Anyway, so we've got a problem with the definition. And then the methodology, primarily when it comes to these kind of issues, is empirical. So um, you go collect a bunch of data, you, you seek some relationships, you see what's connected to what. There's no, with the exception of, of, I'd say, old-style Austrians, there's very little thinking that goes on in economics about, okay, you know, how does an economy get going? What, what, is it, what, what, what is required? What are the foundations of economic growth? What's the foundations of innovation? Even when they do that, they're trying to plug stuff into an equation they create. And it's only people like Mises and, and Kurtzner, if you know uh, Israel Kurtzner, the great Austrian economist, who actually look at, well, entrepreneurs and, and business creation and the environment entrepreneur faces. And so regulations are, are bad to a large extent because they restrict entrepreneurs. And if you restrict entrepreneurs, then you get less economic activity, you get less job creation, you get less wealth creation, you get less production and trade. That's not at all the approach kind of, 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 of observing what work, coming up with first principles, testing those principles out in reality, and then extrapolating from, from principles and, of course, testing. Now it's, there is no hypothesis. We just test stuff. Or, or we randomly come up with hypotheses, as I guess the Popperians would like us to do. And then we test it. And, of course, how do we test it? We run regressions. We do statistical analysis. Uh, the challenge there, of course, is very few people actually know how to do statistics and uh, actually read the data properly and actually know, know what to do with the data and know how to, how, to, how to adjudicate and what the results actually mean. How many people actually know the correlation is our causation? Everybody says it, but how many actually knows what it means and how to do it? So, so a lot of stuff in economics today is just garbage because it's no theory, no real understanding of production and trade and human action and human decision-making as regards to production and trade, all you get is, well, I wonder if these are related. And if they are related, all right, well, that's the relationship. That's, there's a causal thing here. I'll give you an example. I mean, the classic example is minimum wage. And, uh, you know, a simple, simple theory would tell you that if you raise the minimum wage, it's not necessarily simple theory, but theory would tell you if you raise the minimum wage, then overall, yeah, some people's wages go up, but overall, the number of jobs will actually decrease under, under certain conditions that will happen. And, and, and that's a, it's supply and demand. And, you know, you need a little bit more than that in economics, substitute products and what else is going on in the economy and so on. But generally, you can say it used to be said, um, raise the minimum wage. Generally, the, the poorest of the poor, the ones who suffer, they don't get jobs. They, they lose their jobs and, and, uh, and, and, and they, they don't do well. 
Okay. But then somebody runs a study. In this case, it was a study in New Jersey. Uh, an economist by the name of Card, who will go on to win the Nobel Prize. And in the study, under certain conditions, he finds that they raised the minimum wage in New Jersey and nobody seems to have suffered. There was no decline in employment of anybody, supposedly. And out of that, policy advocates, some economists, and a lot of people came to the conclusion, which has then been uh, perpetuated over and over and over again, because it's one study, but it doesn't matter. It's the most important study ever, because it confirmed a, kind of a result that people wanted to believe in. And, and now you have gazillions of people believing that you can raise the minimum wage with no end, and, and really there's, or at least you can raise it significantly, without really affecting poor people without affecting, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the jobs of, of poor people. And as a consequence, you get really, really bad policies. You get people raising the minimum wage because of one empirical study that dominates everything else. An empirical study that you cannot generalize from, that there's so many caveats about because it's in a particular time, in a particular place when the economy was doing something particular. And the problem with statistical studies is you have to control for all of that. You have to take all of that into account. You have to take the whole context into account. So, but that's what they do. You know, so they've been study after study after study after study that show that the minimum wage, what it does is it raises wages for those who still have jobs, those who are not fired. But it leads to a decline in the number of jobs. It leads to a decline in the hours people work. So for the average worker, the average job, the higher wage and lower hours pretty much balance each other out. So they're making about the same. So total earnings don't change much. But for the jobs that are closest to the minimum wage, that are what, what economists say, most exposed to the minimum wage increase. The drop in hours exceeds the rise in wages, and wages decline overall. Now, that's not a surprising result. It's a result consistent with theory. It's a result consistent with logic. And, and I don't want to say intuition, because intuition can often be very wrong. But it is the right result. But how many studies are going to be done on the minimum wage? over and over and over again and disagreements and people question this variable and that variable and this regression and that statistical methodology. The answer's simple, straightforward. And the empirics actually support the answer. They, they have to. Reality is consistent with good theory. Doesn't matter. The mythology, the myth that minimum wage might not be related to increases in unemployment persists and, and it persists everywhere and it dominates and it's it, it's just unquestioned and and people you know people keep raising now we're talking about 25 dollars minimum wages all over the country and and people don't stop junk economics stupid economics minimum wages stupid economics rent control is stupid economics it's people looking through very narrowly. They almost always have an ends that they want to achieve. 
That's that's you remember that definition? You know, what was it? Economics is a science which studies human behavior, relationship between given ends. What's the hell is a given end? So they decide that the given end is we want everybody to make quote a living wage. That's the given end. So economic studies the relationship between that end and the means by which they have an alternative uses, which have alternative uses. What? And no judging the ends, of course, no judging the means, whatever is whatever. Right? But that, that makes economics a purely, purely, well, depends on your interpretation. But, you know, it's, it's, economics also has to assume a particular end. And that assumption is in the production and trade. It has to assume production is good and trade is good. And if production is good and trade is good, certain things flow from that. Part of what flows from that is that, you know, you don't want minimum wages because they interrupt with the ability to produce and to trade. They redistribute scarce resources. Only so much wages I can pay. And the government then decides that I should pay it to these people and not to those people, and those people can lose their jobs. And nobody, again, nobody seems to care about this stuff and how, how, how silly and how straightforward this is, right? So, uh, you know, this is where we are. But, you know, what we're seeing, and, but, but what we're seeing uh, consistently from economists now are these empirical studies or empirical statements that just have no relationship to the truth. Again, like the minimum wage statement. Just no relationship to the truth. And they're often couched in very sophisticated terms, but they ignore trade-offs. And this is where most of them are really broken window fallacies. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what the broken window fallacy is. I, I assume you guys know the broken window fallacy, but maybe not. Maybe there's some young people who haven't heard of it. So here's the broken window fallacy. This, this was described by Bastiat in the 19th century. It was later presented, I think, to a larger audience by um, um, economics in one lesson by, his name will come to me in a minute. Um, and it go, basically it goes like this. Let's say you want to create some economic activity in your neighborhood. You want to get the engines of production going. You want to get, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the more production. So what you do is you give a kid a rock and, and you ask him to throw it through the window of the baker. The kid throws the rock through the window of the baker. And you go, yes, yes. Now we're going to have some increased economic activity. Because what happens when you throw the rock, Hazlitt's, thank you, Henry Hazlitt. I can't believe I forgot Henry Hazlitt's name. That is like, oh wait, Henry Hazlitt, yes. Um, the kid throws the rock through the baker's window. The baker's window smashes. Well, now the baker has to replace the window. So he goes to Glacier. And he asks for the Glacier to make him a window. And the Glacier now has a job. He now has work. This is great. Because he comes out, he measures the window, and then he goes and he orders raw material. And now... The company that says the oh, raw material has economic activity going on for it. 
So you can see there's a whole chain of economic activity created by the rock through the window. The rock through the window has created economic activity. And ultimately, the glacier makes the window, cuts it to size and everything, and installs it and has done the work. And that one act of breaking a window has created massive quantities of work through the entire supply chain, all the way out to getting the sand to make the glass, for, to make into glass. Now, th this theory is consistent with the idea that war is how we get out of depressions because war creates economic activity. Why? Because you break stuff. And once you break stuff, what has to happen? Well, you have to build it up again. So if you break stuff and then you build it, you've created economic activity because the building is economic activity that would not have happened if you hadn't broken it. So breaking stuff is actually good for the economy. Now, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. And the obvious thing that's wrong is, but wait a minute, I had a window before. Now I have a window. Nothing's changed. Yeah, a bunch of people did some work. But in the end of the day, I'm in the same position I was before. A lot of people did work, but we're in the same position. And that is true. This cannot be right. Something is screwy. Something is off. What's off? What is, what is forgotten here? What is missing here? Well, it's the fact that the money you spent on the window could have been spent and indeed would have been spent on other things. That is, that money, you have choices in terms of how to spend it. So let's say you, the baker, were thinking of buying another oven. Well, now you can't buy the oven because you had to buy the window. So a bunch of economic activity around building the oven didn't get created. Instead, we got a window. And the important point here is that the oven is new, would have increased wealth new production, more bread, more cakes, more whatever. The window, status quo, nothing changed. Or what if the, the money was just sitting in the bank and you didn't have any plans to buy a stove, a, a new oven? Well, what does the bank do with the money? It lends it out. Lends it out to some businessman who wants to build a new business and uh, create a bunch of economic activity around this new business. But if you withdraw that money and fund the broken window, well, then all that other economic activity can't happen because you took it out of the bank and the bank can't lend the money out. So the trade-offs, the alternative, the, 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 the choices, the alternative possibilities have just evaporated. They're gone. The broken window has destroyed economic value. It's made all those other possibilities moot. All that other wealth creation, all that additional production, all that additional trade, gone. And instead, you get trade, you get production that's non-additive, that basically puts you back in the same place you were. Well, you as the baker are in a worse position because you have the same window, less money. Yes, 
The Galatia now has more money. So we've allocated resources, but to what end? <laughs> not to the end of wealth creation, not to the end of production and trade, not to anything worthwhile. And a lot of problems in economic, a lot of fallacies in economic boil down to some version of the broken window fallacy. I mean, even the idea that we should go out and stimulate the economy. You know, uh, 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 you should, we should pay a bunch of people to, to, we should borrow, the government should borrow money and pay a bunch of people to dig trenches and then fill them up again. And that will pay the workers a wage and then the workers will then go and they'll buy bread and windows and rents and, and that will create economic activity. They'll create demand, right? But wait a minute. Where did you get the money to pay the workers? I sold some bonds. Well, but what were the people who, who what were the people who bought the bonds from you, gave you the money to do all this? What would they have done with that money? Oh, let's say I raised taxes. Well, what would the taxpayers have done with that money? Now they have less to produce, less demand. The bondholders who bought your bonds, they have less money to go out there and build and create and invest and consume. So you've shifted it, but you've, all you got to show for it is sand. Money's the same money. It's just being allocated differently. And you see, this is the danger of talking about economics as allocation. Yeah, oh, this is interesting. No, it's not. And, and it's, it's not value neutral. Digging trenches and filling them back up, not good from any perspective. Not value creating. Not wealth creating. Not production. There's no production happening. There's no trade happening. Taking some, giving to others, creating demand over here at the expense of demand over there. You haven't done anything. And you see this over and over and over again. You see this in, in analyses and economics, and it's everywhere. In the latest place, you see these, what I call stupid economics, or what um, Scott Lincecum calls, what do you call them, childish economics? or Toddler economics. I like this, toddler economics. Uh, you know, toddlers, not even child, toddler. Because they're so stupid. They're so obviously wrong. The latest place you're seeing this is in conservative circles. We'll get to the left in a minute, but and the left we all know, crazy Keynesian, Krugman, stimulus packages, all of that, always been the currency of the left. It's always been, they don't know economics. But conservatives have always prided themselves on, no, no, we, we study economics. We have good economists. We, we, we know economics. We've read our Milton Friedman, free to choose. We, we, we know this stuff. We don't do broken window fallacies. Well, the conservative movement has changed. Uh, well, one of the most dynamic new pool think tanks, um, uh, new publications that just come out called American Compass on CAS is uh, the CEO. It's a, it's a think tank devoted to, he calls it conservative economics. Conservative economics. Or, quote, common good economics. 
common good economics, like just like common good, the common good constitutionalists, which is uh, Vermeule's thing, common good economics. And one of their big theses and one of their big pushes is that protectionism and industrial policy are good, are good things. And we've done them before and they've worked and we should, we should go for it. So they give an example, right? They give lots of examples. They love examples. Um, they're short on empirical evidence. They're certainly short on any kind of economic knowledge or theory, but they, they have these uh, examples that seem to appeal to people, right? So in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan um, was, if you remember, he bailed out Chrysler, and then um, he, um, he was worried about the big three automakers. So he basically sent his trade negotiators to Japan and got the Japanese to, um, uh, what do you call it, to basically set quotas, self-imposed quotas on how many automobiles they would export to the United States. And today, conservative economists go out there and say, see, this saved Detroit. You know, you guys who want laissez-faire, who want freedom, you couldn't have saved Detroit. We need intervention. We need, we need, we need to go in there. We need to, we need to actually do stuff. We need, to, we, need to, we need a strict trade and in a variety of different ways with a variety of different techniques. Uh, and um, they say, look, we saved Detroit. We saved the automakers. Maybe that's true. Maybe Detroit was saved. But what would happen if Detroit had not been saved? Now, now Jennifer might be out of a job right now, but maybe not. Maybe not. What would have happened to all that capital that Detroit sucked up to produce lousy cars during the 1980s and 1990s that could have been deployed elsewhere. They could have created jobs that are more productive. They could have maybe spurred innovation, created an even bigger boom in Silicon Valley than was created. Indeed, a bunch of economic analysis, and there's quite a few papers around this, show that there's almost there's very weak causal connection, if any, between much of the foreign investment at issue, right? It's also described that because of these quotas, the Japanese started building factories in the United States. Well, did they? Did they build the factories because of the quotas? Or did they build the factories to be closer to the end consumer, to cut on shipping costs, to take advantage of... The South, where they built their factories, which had reasonable labor costs and could produce better cars. And it turns out that there's weak causal relationship between um, the, the, the money invested by, by foreign automakers, the Japanese and the Germans, and all these quotas. And they're massive, massive costs generated by the quotas. I mean, all cars got more expensive for many years. Japan was driving costs down. Costs went up because American automakers were protected from Japanese competition. Big three automakers misallocated. They went for profits, invested in, in 
wrong places, in the wrong things, that ultimately led them to have to be bailed out by Obama in 2008. There's been lots of unintended consequences. Foreign automakers have actually done better, become more competitive, done much better than U.S. Imagine if there weren't quotas, if the American companies would have had to compete. Maybe they would have got faster, better, leaner. Maybe they would have cut better deals with the unions. Competition, I thought, I thought, conservative economists, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought competition was a good thing. Indeed, it turns out that the Japanese automakers loved the quotas. It allowed them to raise prices. Because Detroit raised prices, they could raise prices. They couldn't compete anyway. It was a huge windfall for Japan. And the quotas remained in place because the Japanese liked it so much. The quotas remained in place for, for years after the Reagan administration abandoned them. Told the Japanese, no, no, you don't need to have quotas anymore. The Japanese continued them because it was good for their companies. It took the big three decades to become competitive. I'm not sure they ever became competitive. I'm not sure they're competitive today. This is bad policy. And yet it is hailed by conservatives. Look, you know, classic kind of Trump conservatives. Right? Yeah, we can manipulate. We can, we, can, we can control trade. We know what's best. We can centrally plan it. We can allocate resources. But this is exactly the kind of broken window fallacy. Because, yes, Detroit, Detroit made money. The guy who made windows makes money if you go around town smashing windows. Are we wealthier because Detroit made money? No. We're actually poor. Because all that money that Detroit sucked up in its higher prices could have gone to more productive uses. All that capital that was deployed in Detroit that was producing inferior products at higher prices could have gone to producing good products that actually enhance human life. Imagine if Silicon Valley had had even a greater product, uh, uh, capital boost than what it got. Now, of course, uh, one of the reasons the auto companies do so poorly, one of the reasons American auto companies are not competitive in the world is because of ridiculous, stupid, unbelievable regulations that they suffer from, that other automakers don't suffer from. Uh, of course, all automakers in the U.S. suffer from these. So, uh, but, but again, in other countries, they don't have these regulations, regulations about the weight and the size of automobiles and all, all kinds of stuff related to fuel economy and related to safety and related to all kinds of things that actually make American cars less effective, less efficient, and, and less productive. But they were getting better with competition. When you stop competition, the incentive to get better goes away. The whole field of economics is what if. The whole field of economics is about choices, about choices in what you produce and what you trade. And what we can say without question is when the government intervenes to force a particular allocation of resources, it's going to be less efficient, less productive, less wealth creating than if we just let the market work. The government has no economic insight, has no economic ability to plan, to manage, 
to decide what windows to break to create economic activity. This is, again, the broken window fallacy. And even it turns out even somebody like Scott can't see that the broken windows doesn't work. And this is why this can easily be sold, because most people don't engage with economics at any kind of depth. Most people just accept it. If, if Alan Cass says that, look, we saved Detroit. Yay, we saved Detroit. This is great. How good news is that? We saved Detroit. And it looks obvious. We restricted Japanese competition. We sold more American cars. We're done. We're good. Everything's fabulous. But as Hazlitt teaches us in Economics in One Lesson, if you haven't read Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, you should. And some of you should probably read it again if you've read it before because it looks like you've forgotten that material. Economics is about the consequences. And sometimes those consequences are second order, third order, fourth order. And it's hard to explain that to people. It's hard to tell them that if we hadn't broken the window, economic activity would have still, would have been better. If we hadn't broken the window, that money would have gone to some other economic activity. Certainly can't tell the glazier. The glazier is going to lobby for breaking windows. He might even pay some kids to break the windows. So it's hard to get people to understand the deeper consequences of things. Or the conservative economists like to tell us, look at Europeans. The subsidies to Airbus have created this amazing competitive Boeing. This is amazing. Again, this is from Scott Lincecum's article. Yet, if you look at Boeing, Boeing's very government dependent. Boeing gets subsidies. There's nothing special about Airbus here. Boeing is hand in hand with the government. And one of the reasons Boeing has bought up so much of the, uh, uh, you know, has become so immersed in, um, in building for the military is to become even more established with the government. So Airbus doesn't have a, any difference here. But there are massive costs, massive costs to the subsidies that Airbus and Boeing get, both political and primarily economic. You know, supporting Boeing and Airbus has probably stifled innovation globally. There have been studies like this. It's not that hard to, to see it if you subsidize two big players and you don't subsidize potential competitors. They don't exist yet. It's very hard to become a potential competitor. You're competing against somebody who's being subsidized. So you get very little innovation. You get a lot of planes built, substandard. You remember the, the Boeing that, uh, that, that crashed? Two fatal crashes. One in, I think, um, in Africa and one in uh, Asia, I think. Um, was it a th the new model, the, 37, the uh, 737? And then, of course, the, the, the monstrosity, the A380, the massive Airbus two-decker plane, not productive, not efficient. You get massive cronyism. You get budget overruns. Again, what would have been done with the money if it hadn't gone to them? And you get a real systemic risk. You've only got two airplane manufacturers in the entire world. One of the failures of Chinese central planning one of the failures of Chinese industrial policy is China's attempt to build a competitor to Boeing and uh, an Airbus. It's hard, really, really hard. 
particularly if you're doing it through the government. But that doesn't stop the conservatives, the new conservatives, the new right from declaring Airbus a huge victory and more proof that subsidies work. And of course, one of the great myths that exists out there that I heard a lot when uh, Trump was raising tariffs, like tariffs are like the stupidest, dumbest of all economic policies. It's clearly a tax on Americans, unequivocally a tax on Americans. No economist thinks otherwise, again, except with the exception of these conservative economists. Tariffs are destructive. They're taxes, just like any tax. I thought conservatives were against taxation or against high taxes. Well, tariffs are just a way of raising taxes. I mean, people say, look, Trump was a great president. He lowered taxes. He lowered some taxes. He raised others. What's the net effect? Not clear that you're paying less taxes. But one of the mythologies that they've created, again, that they keep hopping on, the conservatives do, is the, the Trump conservatives, the people who want to raise tariffs, is look, America was built on tariffs. The whole 19th century, America had tariffs. And look, the founders wanted tariffs. And they imposed tariffs as a revenue mechanism for government and as a way to protect American industries. And it, quote, worked. Look, America became rich. Here's a, a great example of correlation does not mean causation. Should I say that again? Correlation does not mean causation. Yes, it's true. During a period of relatively high tariffs in the United States, the United States became rich. That means they will tell you tariffs are what made America rich, or tariffs contributed, or tariffs enhanced, or tariffs were part of what made America rich. What if it turns out, as most economists believe and most good studies of this period will show, what if it turns out the tariffs actually played a negative role in U.S. development in the 19th and early 20th century? What if it turns out that America would have got richer, faster, if it didn't have tariffs? And maybe healthier, maybe with less cronyism. It is an awful economic policy. Uh, one of the stupidest, dumbest, because it is so well understood. The consequence, the costs are so well understood. And yes, during a period where there was no regulation and there was always no taxation, tariffs didn't hurt the economy as much. But in a world in which we tax and we regulate, then whatever they hurt now really hurts. Almost everybody who's actually studied this comes to the same conclusion. The fact that they existed it did not contribute. Uh, Doug Owen, who uh, is a Dartmouth economist who wrote an important paper on the subject and wrote a book on the subject, his quote is, that there is a correlation between high tariffs and economic growth in the late 19th century cannot be denied. But correlation is not causation. And the causation runs the other way around. Uh, well, the causation doesn't run the other way around. The causation runs in a negative sign. That is, ultimately, tariffs restricted economic growth. Economic growth could have been significantly higher. But this is what is being pitched today as economics. This is what is being pitched today as knowledge. And of course, it's not just conservatives. It's the left. And I think one of the 
big myths that both conservatives and the left share is about China. Look, China has grown so fast because of its subsidies. China has grown so fast because of its industrial policy. China has grown so fast. Look at they dominate. They dominate EV. They dominate batteries. Why? Because the government invested in it. Well, is it a good investment? Did they make a good return on their money? Could their money be deployed to better investments that it would have contributed more to the standard of living and quality of life of Chinese? No answer. I mean, anybody who's actually looked at it, anybody who's actually studied it, knows the answer. The latest big study that was done in, in uh, two papers, in, one in 2022 and one in 2023, and, and a third paper that was published this May, uh, this May and also 2023, um, they basically, basically show that industrial policy in China between 2007 and 2018 uh, was ineffectual, was destructive, lowered productivity. Um, you know, uh, made, you know, uh, it, it turned out that government subsidized bigger, less productive companies. Um, that money was given to prop up failing firms. And that it actually was a bad allocation of resources. The same is true of Made in China 2025, which both the left and the right drool over. The same is true of the CHIP Act, of the whole slew of American policies today that are meant to take from some and to invest, the government will invest. And, and right now, the big thing, the, the Biden administration is very excited about this, but, but the right is supporting this. The Biden administration is, is, is big right now on, uh, I don't know if you've, you've, you've seen the stats, but building uh, industrialization in America is on the uptick. More factories are being built. More production is happening, but more factories, real, literal factories are actually being built all over America. And Biden is saying, see, this is the consequence of the, of the, uh, inflation, uh, the inflation Reduction Act. This is a concept which, which is spending a lot of money on building EVs and building uh, all kinds of, all kinds of uh, battery factories and giving subsidies and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of subsidies. And then, of course, the same thing is true of... Uh, Chips of uh, 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 you know semiconductors um, and, and factories for semiconductors, billions and billions and billions of dollars. The whole Chip Act, bipartisan, by the way, Chip Act that is responsible for this. And 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 basically, what's going on right now is is the administration saying, "See, we told you so. All we need to do is have the government invest in American manufacturing, and we could get a manufacturing boom." Nobody considers how we're going to pay for these subsidies. What happens to all this government debt that is being accumulated in order to pay for it today? What could be done with all the interest payment that we pay in order to pay off the debt if, if we actually invested it? Whether anybody at all is doing any kind of analysis on whether these investments are good investments, whether we get a return on our capital, a return on investment. No considerations of what BK2050 is calling opportunity cost. That is, what could I have done with this money? No considerations about that. Will these factories actually be manned? Will they actually produce? How much will they produce? Will they be competitive, given that they're being subsidized? Will the winners be good? Will they innovate? Again, evidence out of China is that when you subsidize industries like this, 
The winners are the losers. The winners are the least productive companies. The winners actually retract from economic growth and economic prosperity. It's nothing here about giving money to the historically marginalized. This money is flowing to areas that have nothing to do with historically marginalized. They're flowing into businesses that have nothing to do with historically marginalized. These are, quote, investments in the economy. You know, you, you look at the factories, you look at what kind of factories are being built, you look at where they're being built and by whom. This has nothing to do with redistribution of wealth. This has everything to do with industrial policy, and this is the kind of industrial policy the Republicans support fully. <laughs> this is a, a good example, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, that Scott uses. He says, with enough subsidized water, you can grow cotton in the Arizona desert. I think they were growing rice in California. Rice, massively water-intensive. And they still, the largest producers, one of the largest crops in, in California is almonds. Massive consumers of water. Why? Because the water is subsidized for farmers in California. I mean, there's no end to the distortions and perversions and misallocation of capital and broken window fallacies and lose, win it, you know, Government and subsidies picking winners and losers and destruction. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 